1: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, Positively
2: FedEx. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the Biden administration mounts an aggressive diplomatic offense at an international security conference. And former President Jimmy Carter enters end-of-life hospice care. Just ahead of its one-year anniversary, the war in Ukraine was the top item on the agenda at the annual Munich Security Conference, with U.S. diplomats publicly blasting the Russians and Vladimir Putin. We have examined the
1: evidence. We know the legal standards. And there is no doubt these are crimes against humanity.
2: Privately, Secretary of State Antony Blinken had a, quote, candid and direct code for confrontational meeting with his Chinese counterpart about the spy balloon. We spoke with him right after that.
3: It's safe to say uh, there was no apology.
2: We'll bring you that interview, plus a conversation with Senator Bernie Sanders. And we'll take a closer look at the nation's mental health crisis and the hospitalization of Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman for depression. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We've got a lot of news to get to today, but last night we learned former President Jimmy Carter has decided to spend his remaining time with his family in Plains, Georgia, in home hospice care. The 98-year-old Carter is the oldest surviving president, and our Bob Schieffer will be along later in the broadcast with some insights. But we want to turn now to that hour long meeting between Secretary of State Blinken and his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi. The first face to face meeting since the U.S. shot down the Chinese spy balloon two weeks ago. We spoke with the secretary last night from Munich just after that meeting. Mr. Secretary, I know you just met with your Chinese counterpart Wang Yi, who has publicly said the U.S. response to the spy balloon was absurd, hysterical and an effort to divert attention away from domestic problems. Was he that dismissive to you in private? (laughs)
3: Um, Margaret, I don't want to characterize what he said. I can tell you what I said. Um, I made very clear to him that China sending a surveillance balloon over the United States in violation of our sovereignty, uh, in violation of international law, was unacceptable and must never happen again. Uh, We also had an opportunity to talk about Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. Uh, and concerns that we have, that China is considering providing lethal support to Russia in its uh, efforts in, in Ukraine. Uh, and I was able to share with him, as President Biden has shared with President Xi, uh, the serious consequences that would have for our relationship. Finally, um, it was uh, important for me to underscore that we believe having lines of communication, engaging in direct diplomacy, is very important.
2: Does that mean their defense minister will pick up the next phone call from Secretary Austin instead of refusing it?
3: Well, it's one of the things that we talked about, uh, the importance of having lines of communication, including uh, military to military lines of communication. It's vital to making sure that there aren't miscommunications, misunderstandings, especially uh, if uh, you've got a, a crisis or some other situation on your hands.
2: Uh, A senior Pentagon official said last week that President Xi Jinping was caught by surprise by the surveillance balloon and that he doesn't trust his own military. Did the left and right hand of the Chinese government not know what was going on?
3: It doesn't matter in the sense that China is responsible for this action um, and ultimately is the leader of the country. Uh, President Xi is responsible.
2: There is uh, open-source reporting that Chinese companies are providing uh, surveillance equipment to that mercenary group, the Wagner Group, fighting in Ukraine. Um, Does the U.S. consider this to be providing military support to Russia?
3: We have been concerned from day one about, about that possibility, and to date we have seen Chinese companies, and of course in China there's really no distinction between private companies and the state. We have seen them provide non-lethal support uh, to uh, to Russia for use in Ukraine. The concern that we have now is based on information we have that they're considering providing lethal support, and we've made very clear to them that that yep. would cause a serious problem for us and in our relationship.
2: Lethal support. What would that entail? What What, what do, do you think of weapons? Uh, that's ammunition. That's primarily weapons. Primarily.
3: There's a whole gamut of things that yeah. that that fit in that category for everything from. Ammunition to the weapons themselves.
2: Uh, Iran is also accused of providing more weaponry to Russia here.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it, they, That's are, right. they are uh, building we've seen an Iran alliance. Provide,
3: there's an increasingly noxious relationship between Russia and Iran, and it's actually a two-way street. Not only is Iran providing this, uh, this equipment to, to Russia, but Russia is also providing military equipment to Iran, uh, including, um, it, it looks like, sophisticated uh, fighter planes.
2: So if, from your conversation with your Chinese counterpart, do I understand that usually when you say it's a direct conversation, that's Diplo speak for it didn't go very well. It was <laughs> it was pretty heated. Um, or did you make plans to visit Beijing in the near future?
3: Uh, it's Diplo speak for saying it was very important to speak very clearly, very directly uh, about Uh, The deep concerns we have, the concerns that we have about this surveillance balloon uh, and the entire program, uh, the concerns we have about the possibility that China will provide lethal material support to Russia in its war effort against Ukraine. But there
2: was no apology. Uh,
3: And it's important that, um, again, don't want to characterize what they said, although it's safe to say there was no apology. We have to make sure that the competition that we're clearly engaged in uh, does not veer into conflict, um, into into a new Cold War. It's not in our interest. Um, I won't speak to theirs, but it's, it's not in ours. Uh,
2: in, in terms of Russia's war, 97 percent of its military is already engaged in this fight in Ukraine, according to the U.K., uh, but mm. they have substantial air power they haven't tapped into yet. Do you see evidence that Russia is preparing an aerial attack on Ukraine?
3: Russia's losses have been uh, horrific. You're right that 97 percent or so of their ground forces um, have been uh, engaged in this war, which is extraordinary. Um, and the losses, to date, have been uh, horrific. Uh, public figures suggest 200,000 casualties, that is, a combination of those killed uh, and those wounded. The uh, destruction of their um, their war machine itself, uh, the tanks, the armored vehicles, uh, the, um, the missile launchers, et cetera, has also been extensive. In terms of air power, um, they tried some of this early on. Ukraine's air defenses were actually successful in shooting down a lot of Russian aircraft. So. They backed off of using aircraft. That doesn't mean that they won't try to do that going forward. Uh, But at least to date, Ukraine has had air defenses that have um, uh, allowed it uh, to pose such a threat to Russian aircraft that they haven't really been flying.
2: I want to ask you lastly about this designation of crimes against humanity that the vice president announced. She cited horrific things like a four-year-old girl being raped by Russian soldiers, thousands Mm. of Ukrainian children being taken from their families to say that this constitutes legally crimes against humanity. President Biden has already used the term genocide. Is the State Department working on a genocide determination?
3: We will, uh, as always, look at every uh, legal possibility when it comes to going after the atrocities that uh, Russia is committing uh, in Ukraine. Uh, The determination that that we made, uh, crimes against humanity that the vice president announced today, is unfortunately starkly clear Uh, and we've seen that almost from day one Uh, this practice that as a parent um, is almost impossible to fathom of literally seizing ukrainian children sending them to russia sending them to centers there are about 43 of them that we found there was a project um, undertaken by yale university with our support uh, that has documented this uh, to 43 centers um, in russia and some in um, ukrainian territory that Russia now holds, some of these places are closer to Alaska than they are to to Ukraine. Separating them from their their families and then having them adopted by Russians. This is in and of itself uh, horrific. It also speaks to the fact that President Putin has been trying from day one to erase Ukraine's identity, to erase its future. Um, That's what's going on uh, and that too is a crime against humanity.
2: Some of what you described is consistent with the statutory basis for the genocide convention. So I'm hearing what you're saying is you are potentially looking at that.
3: We will look at um, every uh, possible determination, but we're going to follow the facts and we're going to follow the law. These are very serious determinations and we will engage in them uh, very seriously.
2: Secretary Blinken, thank you for your time today.
3: Good to be with you. Thanks, Margaret.
0: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.
4: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have?
2: Late last week, Senator Bernie Sanders stopped by the Face the Nation studio to talk about his new book, It's OK to be Angry About Capitalism. You talk about the alliance you formed with Joe Biden during the campaign to really shape the Democratic platform and incorporate many of your ideas. You said he wasn't as bold as you would have hoped, but he would have been the most progressive president since FDR if he had acted on that agenda. How do you categorize Joe Biden on that progressive scale now?
5: Well, I think the American Rescue Plan was, in fact, one of the most significant pieces of legislation for the working class of this country in the modern history of America. Uh, Build Back Better uh, would have been transformational. Uh, it would have finally addressed the crises that the working class of this country has faced for decades, revolutionized childcare, revolutionized healthcare, dealt boldly with climate change. Raised wages, and it would have done a whole lot.
2: But the votes weren't there.
5: We got zero Republican support, and two Democrats uh, decided not to
2: support it. So in terms of how you view the president, do you think he is progressive?
5: I think he is a much more progressive president than he was a United States senator.
2: In some of the things you were able to get done and signed into law— President Biden points to them as achievements, but you diminish them a little bit in this book. You point out Medicare won't be permitted to negotiate lower drug prices until 2026. The cap on out-of-pocket prescription drug costs for seniors doesn't kick in until 2025. $35 cap on insulin prices doesn't help those who aren't on Medicare. Are you saying he hasn't delivered?
5: No. I mean, look, this is the real world that we live in, is that you need 60 votes often in the Senate, The truth is that today over 60% of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. So the question that I am asking is why in the richest country in the history of the world, why aren't, why don't we have a healthcare system that works for all? Why do we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs? So we have seen some achievements, but given the scope of the problems and where we should be going, nowhere near enough.
2: We also have one of the most innovative healthcare systems when it comes to creation of pharmaceutical drugs. You are doing this. No. So when someone hears you lay out the problems with our pharmaceutical industry as you do in this book, it's say, but the life-saving vaccines for example for COVID, they were created by the United States of America. They were created by the pharmaceutical system by, with taxpayer help.
6: Sure.
5: Of course the drug companies produce great drugs. But one out of four people in America cannot afford the, prior, the drugs that the doctors prescribe. So, of course, we want the drug companies to do the research and development. Mm-hmm. And by the way, taxpayers in this country spent $45 billion a year through the NIH to help with that research and development, you're including about, and Moderna and the vaccine.
2: You're talking about Moderna. Pfizer didn't take that, that money. But Moderna, you're, you're sharply critical. In fact, you're calling in Moderna's CEO to right. testify. Um, you're critical of his plan to quadruple the cost of the COVID vaccine. Well, here's Can you the, stop him from doing that?
5: Well, here's the story. Taxpayers, the NIH co-authored, worked together to create the vaccine. Right. Taxpayers put billions of dollars into the development of the vaccine, guaranteed sales for the vaccine.
2: As they did with many other companies. Yep.
5: Too. All right. And then what happens after the government stockpile of the vaccine expires? These guys say, well, we're going to quadruple the price of the vaccine. And by the way, in the last two years, the CEO made five billion dollars And his other guys made billions of dollars. Is that really what should be happening? Truth is, pharmaceutical industry is enormously greedy, charging us outrageously, uncontrollably high prices. We have got to deal with that. As chairman of the relevant committee, I intend to do what I can.
2: Moderna says it's instituting a patient assistance plan to give the COVID shot to the uninsured and underinsured Americans free of cost. Is that sufficient? And
5: you know, Margaret, amazing coincidence. That happened the same exact day is we announced that we were inviting them to testify. You think your
2: political heat made that difference?
5: Well, maybe it was just a wild and crazy coincidence. I don't know. (laughs) But we also want to take a look at what that patient uh, program is about. We are talking to them about that. But obviously, it's a step in the right direction.
2: Step in the right direction. Um, How do you lower the cost of prescription drugs in a way that doesn't hurt American innovation? and? How do you do it politically when Republicans control the House?
5: I think we have the basis for bipartisan work to tell the pharmaceutical industry that they really have got to stop ripping off the American people. A number of ways you could do it. The Inflation Reduction Act started by having Medicare negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical industry. Doesn't kick in for a few years. Yep. I think we should expedite that. Number two, of all people, my good friend Donald Trump, all right, who I disagree with on everything, had the idea that maybe Medicare should not pay prices higher than the average of what countries around the rest of the world are paying. That's a good idea. And we want to pursue that uh, as well.
2: Democrats have this narrow 51 seat majority in the Senate. Both of Pennsylvania senators are out of office right now dealing with serious health issues. And so their absence complicates any votes. Do you have any idea when, for example, Senator Fetterman will be out of the hospital and and well Well, enough uh, to return.
5: uh, We wish Senator Fetterman has gone through a hell of a year with his stroke in the middle of a campaign and dealing with other issues. So I can't answer that.
2: So President Biden talks about um, finishing the job and the potential for running for re-election in 2024. You said you won't run if he runs. Do you believe that President Biden will face any primary challenge from the left, from the progressive wing?
5: I can't speak for other people. I think there's a general consensus right now uh, that uh, President Biden has done not everything we would like. He has done uh, a good job if he runs. Now, since he's gonna run, I will support him.
2: you write right, the essence of the Democratic message in recent years has been, we're pretty bad, but Republicans are worse, so vote for us. Is there anyone inspirational in democratic politics? Sure. There's
5: some great people who are working night and day to protect working class people.
2: So who's the next Bernie Sanders? Who is that voice? I'll let you
5: discover that. What I am extremely proud of is that there are more really strong, young progressives, often people of color, in the House now than probably in any time, certainly in my lifetime, great people. If you ask me what Mm -hmm. I'm most proud of is that So many young people, we won the young vote overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. And I think young people are saying, we don't want to tinker around the edges anymore. Not on climate change, not on racial issues, not on economic issues. We want transformational change. And if my campaigns played a role in changing that consciousness, I'm very proud of that.
2: Former Ambassador Nikki Haley is running for president, as you know, and she said there should be a mandatory mental competency test for politicians older than 75. You're 81. Do you take (gasps) offense at that?
5: What did she mean? I don't understand what (laughs) you... Yeah, you know, no, I think that's absurd. You know, there's a level. Absurd. Yeah. It, you know, we, we are fighting racism, we're fighting sexism, we're fighting homophobia. I think we should also be fighting ageism. Trust people, look at people, and say, you know, this person's competent, this person's not competent. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of 40 year olds out there who ain't particularly competent. <laughs> <laughs> Older people, you know, you look at the individual, I don't think you make a blanket statement.
2: Okay. So, when it comes to the current president or the former president and their age range, it doesn't concern you.
5: Look at what they do, what they believe in. Mm-hmm. What are they fighting for? What does Donald Trump stand for? Do you believe in that? Well, I certainly don't. What does Joe Biden stand for? What is he doing? Has he accomplished? Look at look at him in that way, not on age.
2: We're going to take a quick break, and we'll have more with Senator Sanders in one minute. We're back with more of our conversation with Senator Bernie Sanders. I want to ask you about some issues on foreign policy. CIA director Bill Burns uh, recently said that the uptick in violence in Israel and and Palestinian territories reminds him of the last intifada, that there could be an explosion of violence. Israel now is the most right-wing government it's had in years. Do you um, think that democracy is imperiled in Israel right now.
5: I do, and I am very worried about what Netanyahu is doing and some of his allies in government and what may happen to the Palestinian people. The United States gives billions of dollars in aid to Israel, and I think we've got to put some strings attached to that and say you cannot run a racist government, you cannot turn your back on the two-state solution, you cannot demean the Palestinian people there, you just can't do it, and then come to America and ask for money.
2: Have you talked to the administration no. about it? They've been very careful in are, criticism of the Netanyahu government.
5: Well, I, I, I am not careful about it. Uh, I'm embarrassed that, that in Israel you have a government of that nature right now.
2: And are you going to introduce something?
5: We may well, yes. If a government is acting in a racist way and they want billions of dollars from the taxpayers of the United States, I think I say, sorry, that's not acceptable. You want our money? Fine. This is what you got to do to get it.
2: The pro-Israel lobby, AIPAC, used to be bipartisan, but these days um, it's got a super PAC that has spent very heavily in Democratic primaries. Against progressives. You said they're doing everything they can to destroy the progressive movement in this country. Do you think the politics around this issue are constraining the White House going into 2024?
5: The way I look at AIPAC now, in terms of their political activities, is it's not even just the pro-Israel group. This is a corporate PAC, sometimes getting money from Republicans, sometimes supporting extreme right-wing uh, Republicans. Uh, so what really upset me very much is that in many of these primaries, we had great candidates, young people, often people of color, and you had APAC and other super PACs spending millions of dollars trying to defeat them. And as you may know, I try to get the Democratic Party to pass a resolution that in Democratic primaries, super PAC money should not be allowed to be used.
2: You are proposing a new cabinet-level agency to focus on the future of work and workers. You talk about taxing robots who might replace humans. Isn't the Labor Department supposed to be doing these things? Well,
5: theoretically, but I don't think we're doing enough. Look, this is a huge issue. There is a revolution taking place now with artificial intelligence and robotics, okay? Mm -hmm. Millions of workers are going to lose their jobs. Who's making those decisions, Mark? You hear it debated in Congress? I don't. If there is a technology that can do increased worker productivity, who benefits from that? Just the guy who owns the company? or does the worker benefit? So if we can reduce the work week, is that a bad thing? It's a good thing. But I don't want to see the people on top simply be the only beneficiaries of this revolution in technology.
2: So you agree with Bill Gates and taxing robots?
5: That's one way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I he's mean, a
2: billionaire I'm, you do like.
5: He's. <laughs> I've talked to Bill on a number of occasions, yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but, well, I'm interested in that concept and, and some of the other things you lay out here. But including, you know,
5: it's not just taxing the robots. It's this yeah. whole question of an economic transformation. Are working yeah. class people going to benefit from that or just the billionaire class?
2: So I'm, I'm told we're running out of time. But I'm I just have, getting
5: warmed up, Margaret. Right? the fun. <laughs>
2: But I have to ask you, you're going on tour to promote this book. It's OK to be angry about capitalism and you're here talking about it. I understand we're not the bad guys you're you're describing in the book when it comes to media. But tickets for your tour apparently are selling for ninety five dollars on Ticketmaster, which is accused of anti-competitive behavior. You know that some of your Democrats are criticizing them. Aren't you benefiting yourself no, from the system that you're trying all, to dismantle?
5: First of all, those decisions are made totally by the publisher and the bookseller. I think there's one case, where are in one place here in Washington, po- uh, politics and pros and independent books are charging some tickets. Most of them, I think, are $40, $50, and you get a book as well. So if you want to come... You're going to have to pay 40 bucks. I'll throw in the book for free. And we're doing a number of free uh, events, but I don't make a nickel out of these things. at but all. But
2: you're okay doing business with Ticketmaster?
5: No, not particularly, but that's, again, I have nothing to do with that. That is, if you wrote a book, probably be the same process.
2: Mm-hmm. So you have to operate within the system. I do. Is I what you're... To write
5: a book, a major publisher, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Senator Sanders, thank you very much for coming in and answering our questions today. I
5: hope I wasn't too hard on you.
2: No, and I asked all the questions I wanted. Not necessarily what you wanted, but what I wanted. So thank you very much, Senator Sanders. You heard him, Senator Bernie Sanders just getting warmed up. Our full conversation is available on our website as well as our YouTube channel. We'll be right back. Next week on Face the Nation, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice joins us to talk about China, the war in Ukraine, and more. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. President Biden heads to Poland this week, his second visit since Russia began its war in Ukraine. For more, we go now to Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki. Good morning to you.
8: Good morning. Good morning, Matt.
2: So President Biden will be visiting Warsaw. We know you've said President Zelensky will also be in Poland. What do you expect from these visits?
8: Well, I expect that there will be a very strong confirmation of our resilience and our uh, joint efforts to um, defeat Russia in in Ukraine, because instead of saying, as some Western European politicians say, that Russia cannot cannot win this war and Ukraine cannot be defeated, we have to change the paradigm. And we have to say Ukraine must win and Russia must be defeated. And I believe that the words of President Biden will reassure all Europe that the United States is with us in this fight for freedom and peace.
2: It sounds like you're referring to the French president's recent comments. Does NATO actually want Ukraine to win this war and regain its lost territory?
8: I believe so. I'm absolutely sure that this is the only way how we can restore peace and stability. I I cannot imagine that Putin and the Kremlin winning this war and then peace and stability uh, is around us because uh, the nature, the very nature of Russia uh, is to conquer other countries. Russia has actually summoned the worst of the 20th century, colonialism. Uh, imperialism, nationalism, and and this is this is the nature of the of of Ruski as they call, and this is why uh, it's such a, a critical moment in our history.
2: Uh, President Biden said he believes the war has to end in a negotiated settlement that's favorable to Ukraine. You said last year Poland doesn't negotiate with criminals, criminals. Nobody negotiated with Hitler. Would you negotiate with Hitler, with Stalin, with Pol Pot? Are you saying peace is not possible if Putin stays in power?
8: I just came uh, to, 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 hear, to, to hear this interview from Munich conference. Munich uh, Security Conference very important platform to exchange opinions today. But in 1938, there was another Munich conference where all the leaders of the Western world succumbed to Hitler. And they believed they... They are, they are bringing peace to their countries. And uh, one year later, uh, the Second World War broke out. Uh, we, we, we can, of course, negotiate, but it has to be on the conditions uh, and under the definition uh, presented by uh, Ukrainians themselves. It's up to them to define what, uh, what uh, terms and conditions uh, can be uh, acceptable uh, to, to negotiate with, with the Kremlin.
2: One of Ukraine's neighbors, Moldova, has warned that there is a plot to overthrow their government and open a new front uh, in the war. Uh, an ally of Putin recently said that Russia should denazify and demilitarize Poland next. Do you see evidence that Russia is going to try to move into other countries, including yours?
8: Yes, I, I, I do see lots of fingerprints of Russian forces, Russian services in Moldova. This is a very weak we're a very weak country, and we all need to help them.
2: But in terms of Poland, you are in NATO. So the United States would have to come to your uh, defense if you went to NATO and asked for it. There are 11,000 U.S. service members on rotation in Poland currently. I know your government's asking for more. Do you have any indications from the Biden administration that they will send more troops or make them permanent on your soil?
8: We are in the process of discussion with uh, President Biden's administration about making their presence more permanent and increasing uh, them. But, uh, But I'm very grateful also for sending new patriot systems and other very modern weapons and munitions, because this is also to some extent, a proxy for a proxy for uh, for presence of soldiers, but but of course, the two go in tandem. Um, I also recall the words of President Biden uh, from uh, last uh, from his last visit in Poland when he said that every inch or square inch of NATO's country's territory, is will be defended and mm-hmm. uh russia is 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 not going to uh put any uh, any inroads into into those countries and i do believe that nato countries we are all very much secure but it's not only about us it's also about creating um a, 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 mm-hmm. a stability around us in our ne- direct neighborhood and if no. we uh, fall to integrate Ukraine in NATO and the European Union, Ukraine will always be a zone, a buffer zone, which is, which is not right. All
2: right. Mr. Prime Minister, we'll be watching that visit. Thank you for your time.
8: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: And we'll be right back with some analysis. We're now joined by Dr. Fiona Hill, a Trump Administration National Security Council advisor on Russia, and former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, who is now a CBS News contributor. Good morning. Good to have you both here. Um, uh, Fiona Hill, I'd love to talk to you first. Secretary Blinken admitted Russia's not isolated. It's getting support from China. It's getting support from Iran. So does that mean the West's main tool here, sanctions, are failing?
9: Well, I think sanctions was never the only tool that we had. I mean, diplomacy as well as the military support for Ukraine. And I think, you know, what we heard from Secretary Blinken and, you know, the fact that he's just been at the Munich Security Conference underscores that we're going to have to really up our diplomatic gain. Because, you know, as you're suggesting here, a lot of other countries just don't buy that um, there's as big an issue as we see uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, they're always making comparisons with, you know, the great power competition among the United States and Russia and China and seeing it as part of that. And I think, you know, what uh, Secretary Blinken and other members of the administration um, have been really striving to get across is that It's not part of that. The United States isn't fighting over Ukraine for any kind of competition uh, with China and uh, with Russia. They're trying to help Ukraine liberate itself. That's the message that we have to get across. And frankly, if Russia gets away with a land grab in Ukraine, it makes the world unsafe for every country imaginable that has a territorial dispute, including, of course, all of the neighbours of China in uh, the South China Seas and East Asia and many other countries as well. India and China have a major dispute in the Himalayas, for example. And what we really have to do is to work with those middle powers, the countries in the UN a General Assembly, to make that point that we're trying to help Ukraine liberate its uh, territory from an unprovoked aggression.
2: Ambassador, you heard from the Polish prime minister this concern that not just the blast radius from this conflict, but that there will be some pushing of it beyond borders, maybe not over invasion, but destabilization. Sure. When you were uh, in the administration, you left in September, there was talk about the surrounding countries also uh, being targeted by Russia. Do you think that's underway now?
6: Absolutely. I mean, we've seen the, the story earlier this week about a potential uh, effort by the Russians to undermine the government in Moldova. We've seen overflights by Russian missiles that were attacking Ukraine that have gone over the territory of other countries that aren't parties to the conflict. But this is a longstanding concern by, by Poles, by Eastern Europeans that have always felt threatened By that uh, colossus on their eastern border by Russia. Mm -hmm. They've always described it to me as uh, when I was deputy secretary, they felt that they were on the front lines against this Russian, imperialist Russian uh, state.
2: But this feels different. I mean, when you were here with us, um, last time you said, when you talked to Secretary Blinken, February 19th of last year, he asked you. How are you feeling? You said it feels like August 1939. Right. You so, just said the Polish prime minister invoked Hitler.
6: Yes. So what happened on February 24th last year, Putin pre- pushed all of his chips to the center of the table. He went all in. You'll recall before February 24th, there, were, there was speculation about, yeah, there'll be maybe a limited incursion into right. Ukraine. Putin went all in. He went full World War II, World War I scale. This is war. And we're going all in. We're going to take down the Ukrainian government. We're going to subjugate the Ukrainian people. And by God, we're going to do with Ukraine what we wish, because Ukraine isn't a country. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is part of our ruski mir. We're going to do with it what we, wish, what we want to. And you, the United States, you, NATO, anybody else, you can't stop us. And
2: he's betting on a short attention span here in the West, here in the United States, Um, Vladimir Putin is set to give an address Tuesday. It's going to be his first state of the nation since the war began. Very same day, President Biden is going to give a speech in Poland. What's the message you expect and should be delivered?
9: Well, I think what... Putin is going to deliver is a message that picks up on what Ambassador Sullivan's just said. He's going to depict this as a great patriotic war. You know, they use interchangeably fatherland war, protection of the motherland. In this case, Putin has been actually trying to say that this is the third invasion of Russia. Uh, after Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars back in uh, the 1800s, and then Nazi Germany. So he's actually portraying this as an existential threat for Russia. So what we would imagine is that he's really trying to mobilize the Russian population uh, in support of what he's depicting as the fight for their lives. Now, President Biden's going to have to counter that. We have to counter that narrative, not just in Europe. And, you know, as we've heard from uh, the Polish prime minister, we've heard from many other European leaders. They do see things in this same Mm -hmm. term as a a rerun of World War I and World War II in the sense of an unprovoked aggression by a great power in Europe. But they've got to basically and President Biden's got to convince the world the whole world at this point, not just Europeans, that we're in a fight to help Ukraine liberate itself and that everything that Putin is saying is a distortion of history and of fact.
2: Ambassador, when when you talk about the war in Ukraine politically here in the United States, President Biden gets attacked by Republicans in particular for being too slow moving to approve certain types of weapons. Fighter jets, for example, for a year have been debated about whether to give them or not. Is this too slow moving if we are actually in this incredibly important moment?
6: Well, it is an incredibly important moment and I think some of the criticism has been fair. It has been, I think the administration of which I was a part until recently has been a little slow, has been cautious. President Biden, uh, the the marching orders we got at the start of of this conflict was he wanted to do everything we could to support Ukraine, but he didn't want a war with Russia. And that's the careful balancing act that we've the administration has been going through. But Not Vladimir easy judgment. Putin
2: doesn't want a war with the United States either.
6: Uh, Vladimir Putin says he's already at war with the United States. He says the reason that he invaded Ukraine is that Ukraine, put up to it by the United States, was going to invade Russia. Ukraine was going to develop nuclear weapons. The United States and Ukraine would developing bioweapons. The times that he will use the word war to discuss what's happening in Ukraine is when he says the West, the United States and all of its vassals, the word they use, is actually at war with Russia. When he talks about the special military operation, Mm -hmm. that's the response by Russia to the war that the United States is already waging through its Ukrainian proxies. As they say, the United States wants to fight against Russia to the last Ukrainian. And it's all, it's all made up,
2: and those are the words you're going to be listening for on Tuesday. He's he going
6: to absolutely. Uh, Fiona is absolutely right. It, it's uh, it's going to be rallying the Russian Russian people to uh, to in, to support the the fatherland in this what he considers existential war that he's engaged in in Ukraine. Uh,
2: Dr. Hull, I mean Ukraine's foreign minister said at Munich, the true end to the war will be when Russia's president comes to Kiev, falls to his knees, and begs for forgiveness. That does not sound like Vladimir Putin.
9: No, but perhaps, you know, 90 years from now, some Russian president might do that. And I'm saying 90 years because actually um, Ambassador Sullivan and I have some Irish heritage and it took 90 years for the uh, queen, Elizabeth mm-hmm. II, to actually come and ask for forgiveness um, in Ireland uh, in a very highly symbolic way for you know, many of the conflicts. It's not inconceivable that at some point some Russian leader, not uh, in the immediate future, would in fact uh, ask for forgiveness for what's been done in Ukraine. We saw German leaders after World War II, you know, eventually ask for similar forgiveness at war memorials, including in uh, the Soviet Union and in Russia itself. But it is true that when Russia mm-hmm. drops as a country these imperial aims, that then this will finally be over, but it won't be any anytime soon. Thank
2: you. It's hard to believe we're a year into this conflict. We will be back in a moment. There is a mental health crisis in our country, and we are reminded of that frequently. For a closer look at what may feel to many like an epidemic, we want to bring in Dr. Joshua Gordon of the National Institute of Mental Health, which is the lead federal agency for research on mental disorders. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. I want to start on uh, one of these triggers, you know, Senator Fetterman, a stroke survivor, checked himself into the hospital with clinical depression, and it has inspired a lot of people to talk about their experiences with depression. In his case, what are the symptoms of stroke-induced depression?
7: The symptoms of stroke-induced depression are pretty much the same as typical depression or depression that's not associated with stroke low motivation, sadness, challenges with sleep, appetite, energy, uh, loss of motivation, and the like.
2: So, what is a reasonable expectation and timeline for someone's treatment? Do they get back to them their old selves?
7: Fortunately, there are effective treatments for depression, and those treatments do generally work for most people who have stroke-induced depression. The timeline, though, varies tremendously from individual to individual, and it's hard to make a prediction in the senator's case.
2: What is the typical treatment for someone these days? Is talk therapy still strongly believed in? Is medication uh, more prescribed these days?
7: Well, given the typical severity of post-stroke depression, most Most mental health professionals would recommend a combination of medication and what we call psychosocial or psychotherapeutic interventions. So yes, talk therapy is still used. It is a very effective tool for depression, as are medications. And if the patients don't respond to talk therapy or medications, there are additional options to try.
2: You know, there was this recent CDC study about teenage girls, which was really sobering. It said nearly three in five U.S. teens, teen girls, feel persistently sad or hopeless, double that of boys, representing a 60 percent increase, the highest level reported over the past decade. What is going on with young girls
7: well, it is, it is truly a tragedy, it is truly a crisis, and we desperately need to do something about it on a societal level and on community levels. The what is going on question is one that we can't fully answer at this point. A lot of people think, oh, it must be the pandemic and its effects. But if you look at the surveys that the CDC has been conducting for the last decade or more, you can see the slow rise in levels of symptomatology, particularly amongst teenage girls, goes back long before the pandemic started. So there are a a number of contributing factors, but on the whole, uh, it's a complex picture that we don't fully understand.
2: So what are parents supposed to do?
7: That's a great question. First and foremost, parents need to talk to their kids. They need to listen. They need to ask questions about how they're feeling. And if they're worried, they do need to ask the question, are you thinking about hurting yourself or killing yourself? So that's the first thing is ask questions. And the second thing, listen to the responses and try to be there for your kids. If the answers suggest that your child is having more trouble than Uh, than, than you think or is thinking about harming themselves or is otherwise having challenges going to school and getting good grades, et cetera, then parents should seek professional help.
2: Doctor, thank you for your professional insight. We'll continue monitoring it and we'll be right back. We learned the sad news Saturday that former President Jimmy Carter has entered the final stage of his life and will forego any further medical treatment. Our Bob Schieffer covered Jimmy, former president Jimmy Carter almost 50 years ago and brings us his insights into Carter's career.
11: When the former governor of Georgia decided to run for president in 1975, it was not as if America had been waiting for him with bated breath.
8: Jimmy who? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy who?
2: I don't know who he is.
11: He was so unknown that his surprise win in the Iowa caucuses brought headlines blaring the same question. But that race changed politics so much that Iowa became an obligatory first stop for presidential candidates. Carter tried to make a virtue of his lack of Washington experience. A self-made peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, introduced us to an improbable cast of small-town characters. But his best asset was always wife, Rosalind. Carter's campaign came down to one simple promise.
5: I'll never tell a lie. I'll never make a misleading statement.
11: After the lies of Watergate, it worked, despite a campaign of dubious firsts. The uh, audio has been lost. The sound went out during his debate with President Gerald Ford leaving the two candidates just standing there for 28 minutes. Carter went on to defeat incumbent Gerald Ford, maybe not so much because of what he said, but because Ford had pardoned Richard Nixon. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear that I... Like his campaign, Carter's presidency began in some chaos. He bombarded Congress with so many proposals, plans, and legislation, Washington couldn't sort out his priorities. The low point for Carter came when Iran's revolutionary leaders took U.S. diplomats hostage. The conflict set off a fuel shortage back home, and Americans faced long lines at gas stations from coast to coast. A military mission to rescue the hostages collapsed in an Iranian desert, and with it Carter's campaign for re-election. The captives remained behind bars until the new president was sworn in. For all that, Carter was responsible for two extremely significant achievements. Negotiating the Panama Canal Treaty assured the canal stayed open to American ships, and American troops would not be needed to put down an almost certain rebellion. Even more important, Carter engineered the Camp David Accords, which remains the single most important diplomatic achievement in the Middle East. It took Egypt. Israel's most dangerous adversary out of the conflict.
5: I would like to say, as a Christian, to these two friends of mine, the words of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be the children of God.
11: Although he served only one term, Carter went on to become America's most active and productive former president. He visited countries around the world, serving as a mediator in settling disputes. His scientific work in Africa helped eradicate the screw worm, where it was said his was the presidential name most often remembered. His work in Habitat for Humanity revived volunteerism in this country. When President Biden visited him in May of 2021, the pair discussed cancer research a topic close to both their hearts. Carter survived brain cancer in his early 90s. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter have been married more than 75 years, the longest presidential marriage in history. This is Bob Schieffer.
2: That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Independent Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morwiecki, former White House official and Russia expert Fiona Hill, former ambassador to Russia John Sullivan, and Dr. Joshua Gordon, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com
4: survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
10: Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture-maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode.